Hey SLE Church, I uh, hope you're all going well and keeping safe. So uh, today's um, passage is from Joshua chapter 9 um, verse 1 to chapter 10 verse 15 and then chapter 11 verses 16 to 23. So we'll start with uh, chapter 9 first. Joshua chapter 9, starting from verse 1. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, They on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you, and where do you come from? They said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him, and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon the king of Heshbon, and to Og king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey, and go to meet them, and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses, as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon. Shepherah, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them, because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us, because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leader said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying, We are very far from you, when you dwell among us? Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. 
So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Deber, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makedah. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven, and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since, when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, to the camp at Gilgal. Uh, chapter 11, starting from verse 16. So Joshua took all that land, the hill country, and all the Negeb, and all the land of Goshen, and the lowland, and the Arabah, and the hill country of Israel, and its lowland from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, as far as Baal Gad, in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings, and struck them, and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle. 
in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Deber, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. Oh, a big good morning to everyone uh, tuning in online. And a, uh, my name is Stephen, one of the pastors of the church. And uh, lovely to welcome you along to this live stream. If you are, again, if you are new here this morning, I want to uh, warmly welcome you uh, and encourage you to fill in that, uh, uh, that feedback form to let us know who you are so we can remain connected with you. Uh, another quick note about the survey. Um, again, just a reminder to uh, spend some time after the service, after the, the, um, uh, it's all finished, uh, filling that in. It will take a few minutes, but we would love to hear your feedback. Uh, and if you find it a, a touch impersonal, feel free to pick up the phone and, uh, or Zoom us or even catch up with us for coffee uh, because we'd love to be able to minister to you directly. Uh, just uh, don't forget after this service as well, there's a Q&A after this uh, message. Uh, and because Ben's here, I might tag team with him and rope him in into the session uh, with us. He can answer some of the questions from the previous weeks that he's looked at as well. For now, though, let's pray. As we encounter this really uh, fantastic, uh, jam-packed, action-packed passage, let's pray and ask God to help us understand it together. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for your word, that you speak to us, that you reveal yourself to us. And here, you reveal yourself in ways that maybe we're not familiar with, less familiar with, maybe even sometimes slightly uncomfortable with. We pray that as we read through your word, you would help us by your spirit, wrestle with this word, uh, receive it gladly, and proclaim your glories through it. Father, we pray for your Spirit's help. Holy Spirit, help us to understand this word. Holy Spirit, help me to speak clearly from this passage as I ought. For we ask all of these things for the glory of your, uh, your son Jesus. Uh, and in his beautiful name we pray. Amen. Yahweh is the warrior who defeats the foe. Israel must not miss this. It is too bad much of the church has lost this vision of God or Christ as the warrior who fights for his people. Too many of us regard this conception as substandard, by which we mean it does not fit our sentimental 20th century graven images of what God ought to be like. The imagery seems too violent. And we do the same for the Lord Jesus. The popular image of Jesus is that he is not only kind and tender, but also soft and prissy, as though Jesus comes to us reeking of hand cream. So says Dale Ralph Davis in his always insightful commentary on Judges, uh, Joshua, I should say. Now, when you hear a quote like that, what's your first reaction? Does the idea of God and Jesus as 
a warrior who fights for his people, is that a picture you often have in mind when you think about God and Jesus? Is it a picture that you're comfortable with? Or does your picture of Jesus look more like what David says at the end here? Soft, tender, too soft, reeking of hand cream. Not that there's anything wrong with hand cream. See, as we open up our Bibles this morning to Joshua 9 to 11, we're going to be confronted with a vision of God that we might not be comfortable with. But at the same time, we're going to see again that God is pictured as a warrior fighting for his people. Now, there are some very strange and some very interesting details in these chapters. Uh, but through it all, we should see one thing clearly. Yahweh, faithful to his promises, helps Joshua and Israel finish the conquest. We'll see Yahweh fight alongside Israel as a warrior, helping them to destroy all the kings and the nations of the land. And we're going to have to ask ourselves at the end, whose side are we on? As we dive into point one, let me note uh, very quickly that we're going to spend probably a little bit more time in point one and skip through points two and three in the outline. Hopefully that will make sense as we go along. Now, so far in the book of Joshua, we've seen individual battles close up, specific battles. We've, and we've actually only seen two of them, Jericho and I. From here on, we're going to speed up in the action. Chapter 9, however, um, has an interesting encounter. First in chapter 9, verses 1 to 2. If you have your Bibles there, please keep them open. Have a look at, glance over verses 1 and 2. You see the kings of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, and the Hevites, and the Jebusites, hearing of what Joshua and Israel have done to Jericho and I, and then uniting together to go against Joshua and Israel. Now note, again, at the end of verse 1, the kings heard of this, and then they respond. This idea of hearing and responding is a, an important running theme throughout this whole, these three chapters. Also notice that the list there at the end of verse 1, that list is a list word for word of the nations listed in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 17. Deuteronomy 20, verse 17. Now the duplication of this list is not a coincidence. See, back in Deuteronomy 20, Moses tells Israel that they are not to make any agreements or covenants with these particular nations as they go into the land, but they are to devote them to complete destruction. See, the narrator here in Joshua is trying to remind us that Israel is not to make peace with any of these nations. And then in verse 3, something else happens. So in verse 3, we're introduced to Gibeon, who are part of the Hivites. Gibeon is about 8 kilometers northwest of Jerusalem. So if you want to gauge that kind of distance, think the distance between Esseli Church and Mount Kutha. Notice in verse 3 that they heard what Joshua had done, and they respond as well, again, keeping that theme of hearing and responding going. But instead of responding by joining the forces with the other kings against Israel, these guys choose to do something else. You see what they do in verse 4. They, on their part, acted with cunning. Now, the word cunning there is very interesting because it's the same word used to describe the snake in the Garden of Eden. 
So memories of the deception by the snake in the Garden of Eden comes to mind. And we're being prepped for what the Gibeonites are going to do and how they're about to try and deceive Israel. And sure enough, their plan in verses 4 to 6 is to trick Israel into making a covenant with them. Now, for some reason, they seem to know God's laws, that God's laws allow covenants and agreements to be made with people who are far away, who are outside the boundaries of the promised land. So they, they, they seem to know that Israel is to destroy all the inhabitants internally, but they're okay to make covenants externally. So their plan, their plan, bring along some worn out sacks, worn out wineskins, worn out sandals, worn out clothes, and make it look like they've been traveling from a really far away distant nation. In verse 8, Joshua, however, is a little bit suspicious, rightly questioning them. Who are you, really? And where do you come from? And listen to how the men of Gibeon respond in verses 9 to 11. Uh, Verses 9 to 11. They said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come, because of the name Yahweh, your God. For we have heard a report of him, and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings, the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hands for the journey, and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. You notice, notice that their language here mirrors the language of Rahab in Joshua chapter 2. Right? She also points out to what Israel did to Sihon and Og. Remember those two guys were two very big giant kings. The difference here is that these guys rehearse these words to flatter Joshua. They are buttering him up. So that they, when they show Joshua they, their fake evidence of a long journey, he won't suspect them of any wrongdoing. And Joshua buys it. The flattery and the fake evidence is enough to convince Joshua to make an agreement with them. And so we read in verse 14, however, but they did not ask counsel from Yahweh. Now, at the end of verse 14, we're told that's, that's not a good thing. They haven't sought Yahweh. They haven't gone to him for advice. Why is that a problem? Put simply, Joshua and Israel were relying on their own strength and their own smarts. Their mistake wasn't that they were deceived. Their mistake is that they didn't ask God for help with this. Now, the truth eventually comes out in chapter 9, verse 16 to 21. See, three days later, the people of Israel end up in Gibeon, Chephirah, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. Now, they notice that, whoa, they come here and they notice that a few of these people in this place are the same people they just made a covenant with. What's going on? They begin to realize. They realize they've made a mistake. They realize they've made an agreement with some of the inhabitants of the land. But instead of attacking, they grumble against their leaders and Joshua. Now, the word grumbling or the word murmured there in verse 18, it's the same word again that Israel did when they grumbled against Moses in the wilderness. Well, this could be a disaster. Now, at this point in the story, you, some of us might ask, well, why couldn't they just break the agreement? Right? In Australia, 
I'm assuming this in, uh, the same as well in most countries which have been influenced by English common law. When you make a contract with someone and it turns out that you were mistaken, there are ways out of it. Say you made a contract with me, but it turns out that I'm not the person you thought I was, or I deceived you into thinking that I was someone else, or a, of a different position, or the details of the contract were not what you thought they should be. Well, you could take that contract to court and just get it voided. You could rock up to a judge and say, hey, this is not what I agreed to, and they'd probably just rip it up before you. But covenants in the Bible are not like that at all. They are deadly serious because they are sworn on God's name. To break a covenant that weighty results in serious consequences. So you can see in verse 20 that Israel and the leaders know that God's wrath will be upon them if they break their oath. It will actually reflect poorly that it would blaspheme God's name to break a covenant made in his name. So when you think about it, the fact that Joshua entered into such a serious covenant so lightly on so little evidence without seeking God first, that's a big mistake. Now in verse 22 to 27 of chapter 9, Joshua confronts them, they admit it, and Joshua puts them into indentured servitude. Not quite slaves, but Gibeon would serve Israel from now on. They would become woodcutters and water collectors. Now we're already one chapter into the conquest of the rest of the promised land. And we're already left with a bit of a sigh. Israel has stuffed up. They have some servants out of it, but it's hard to escape the fact that they messed it up. Now that said, it's not all completely lost. See, for Gibeon, Gibeon are given an incredible privilege in verse 27. They end up being woodcutters and water collectors for the altar of Yahweh. They get to serve the tabernacle and the temple. So being that close to God constantly and serving his temple must have had an impact on them. Because the next time you hear the names Chephirah, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim together is in the list of names of those who returned from exile. There in Ezra chapter 2 verse 25 and Nehemiah verse 7, chapter 7 verse 29. You see, here in Joshua, the covenant with Gibeon is a mistake. But Gibeon not only saved their lives... They were eventually included as part of God's people. Nice. And when we, heard, uh, we head back to chapter 10, we continue marching west of the Jordan, uh, and we encounter Adonai Zedek, who forms a coalition with four other kings, Hoham of Hebron, Piram of Jamuth, Japhia of Lachish, and Debir of Eglon. Five kings marching together. Now notice in verses 1 and 2 that Adonai Zedek hears about Joshua, and in verse 2, he feared greatly. But instead of negotiating, his response is to fight. So by verse 5, they form their coalition and they march against Gibeon. Now, in verses 6 and 7, Gibeon sends to Joshua for help. And because of the oath that Joshua swore, they head off from Gilgal to Gibeon to fight. Now, I mentioned before that so far in Joshua, we've seen individual cities being taken. Now Joshua comes up against a coalition, a proper army. And everything before seems like a piece of cake now in comparison. 
So in verse 8, Yahweh gives some encouragement. Chapter 10, verse 8. And Yahweh said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man shall stand before you. Echoes of chapter 1 come flooding into Joshua's mind. Do not be afraid. No man shall stand before you. Joshua is Mialofa Tio, that tanky little rugby kid, ready to be given the ball and just let him run all over the opposition. Nothing can stand in Joshua's way. Now, the details of this battle are actually worth looking at closely because there are some things in which are a little bit confusing and have been confusing for some time for a lot of uh, readers throughout the millennia. First in chapter 10, verse 9, Joshua is camped at Gilgal. Right, so Gilgal, uh, he marches his forces all night from Gilgal to Gibeon. Now, the distance between Gilgal and Gibeon is roughly the distance between Esseli Church and Costco, Ipswich, or Esseli Church and Ikea Logan. Uh, it, for some reason, Ikea and Costco are the same distance uh, from that kind of comparative distance. So they've marched all night long. Then in verse 10, without any rest, Yahweh throws the enemy, into co the enemy coalition into a panic and Israel rushes in to strike them down. And then in verse 11, you see Yahweh step into the battle. As the enemy are making their escape, Yahweh throws down large stones and hailstones, wiping them out. Yahweh kills more men with hailstones than Israel did with the sword. Now, at this time, or shortly before it, we have a very, very interesting moment. In verse 12, Joshua prays, but what he prays has had so many people scratching their heads. Read again with me in verse 12 to 14. At that time, Joshua spoke to Yahweh in the day when Yahweh gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. He said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of the heaven, and did not hurry to set about for a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since, when Yahweh heeded the voice of a man, for Yahweh fought for Israel. Now, if you're old enough, and have been in Christian circles for long enough, uh, you may have heard rumors that NASA scientists did some calculations, uh, something to do with the positions of the stars, uh, and then compared it to our calendars and actually discovered a missing day. And then some Bible experts took this news and pinpointed that missing day to this one here in Joshua, the day when the sun stopped and did not hurry to set for a whole day. If you heard that, I need to burst your bubble a little bit because it's a, it's a myth. It's an urban legend. It's not true. NASA has never claimed this, and the story seems to have been a tall tale from someone who apparently did some contracting work with NASA. So then, what are we to make of these verses? Long story short, it's poetry. It looks like poetry. The phrasing and the cadence and the parallelism between the sun and the moon indicates that this is poetry. Now, you could read these verses literally, by all means, and God is powerful enough to do that. We believe that. 
But most likely, these verses seem to be figurative, that in this battle, God was even directing the cosmos to fight for Israel. The sun, the moon, the hailstones, all of that used by God as his weapons of war. The main point, however, from I think this little bit here is in verse 14, that there was no day like this, a day in which Yahweh heeded the voice of a man. Yahweh heard and obeyed a man, for Yahweh fought for Israel. Again, that kind of theme of hearing and responding coming up again, and even Yahweh would hear the voice of a man and in some ways obey or submit to it. So the main point of these little verses is that this was a stunning moment in which Yahweh, the warrior, fought for Israel. And when Yahweh fights for you, which army can be big enough to stand against you? Joshua may be Mia running, ready to run over the opposition. But having Yahweh on your team is actually like having a big hulking professional rugby player on that same team of kids running ahead of that little boy and bowling everyone over. It's just no contest. The rest of the story is pretty straightforward. In verse 16 and 21, the five kings are trapped in a cave in Makeda. In verse 22 to 27, Joshua brings them out. He slays them and he throws them back into the cave and covers the entrance of that cave with large stones. And throughout the book of Joshua, you'll have noticed that there's always a collection of stones somewhere in the story. Memorials, ways for Israel to remember what happened in the past. And here with the stones at the entrance of the cave, you've got another stone memorial, another reminder to Israel that Yahweh fought for them against these five kings. So far, we've had 10 and a half chapters now of a lot of detail, lots of fighting up close. It's time for a montage. Uh, the rest of chapters 10 to 11 cover a relatively long span of time. We're not to imagine as we read through this that this all happened on the same day or even in the same week. Uh, even uh, chapter 11 verse 18 says there that Joshua made war a long time with these kings. Now, a, movie, in a, mon uh, a montage in a movie is the fastest way to cover a lot of ground. You're going to get snippets of different scenes, all of these highlighting what's happening very quickly, so you can get a quick uh, overview. So in chapter 10, verse 28 to verse 43, so basically the rest of chapter 10, the focus moves from the individual battles all the way to the southern parts of the promised land. Joshua and Israel march through, and they take the city of Makeda, of Libna, of Lachish, of Geza, of Eglon, and Hebron, and Debir. Two main things come up as we actually read through this section, as you notice through this section. First, Yahweh is the one who gives these cities and kings into the hands of Israel. So chapter 10, verse 30. And Yahweh gave it also and its kings into the hand of Israel. And the same thing in verse 32. And Yahweh gave Lachish into the hand of Israel. Right, this running theme runs underneath the rest of the chapter. Yahweh, the warrior, continues to battle for his people. And that's the conclusion that you see at the end in verse 42 as well. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because Yahweh, God of Israel, fought for Israel. Right? So first thing we notice as we read through this passage, Yahweh is the one who gives these cities and the kings over to, into the hands of Israel. 
Second thing we notice is that there is a constant refrain throughout this whole section that Joshua devoted everything to destruction in obedience to God's commands. You see it there in chapter 10, verse 30, verse 10, chapter 10, verse 33, verse 35, verse 37, and verse 39. And ten, chapter 10, verse 40 basically sums it up for us. Verse 40. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negev and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as Yahweh, God of Israel, commanded. So Joshua is being obedient to God's command and listening to God as he takes all the southern area of the promised land. Now, if the book of Joshua was an epic kind of movie, uh, the camera would kind of finish walking us through this montage of all the southern cities that are being taken. It would kind of zoom out, I think, to a map of Israel as we see Joshua take all the southern half. And then the camera would zoom into the north, uh, north, just north of the Sea of Galilee, to a place called Hazor and right into the throne room of, of King Jabin. Chapter 11, verse 1. Notice again that, Je what, that Jabin heard. He has most likely been informed about Joshua's taking of the south. And again, instead of opening up negotiations, he forms a coalition. Now, if the five kings and their coalition in chapter 10 were a big army, then this one here in chapter 11 is colossal. This is the battle to end all battles. Read again chapter 11 verses 1 to 5 and feel this sense of foreboding doom. Chapter 11 verse 1. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he sent to Joab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshphar, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah south of Chinneroth, and in the lowland, and in the Naphoth door of the, on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hevites under Hermon in the land of Mitzpah. And they came out, all of their troops, a great horde in number, like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. Hear that again. An army in number like the sand on the seashore. That sight would be enough to make the bravest of men Weak at the knees. So in verse 6, chapter 11, verse 6, Yahweh repeats, do not be afraid. The words that Moses gave to Israel are now ringing in Joshua's ears. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 1. Uh, the, that, these are the words that Moses gave to Israel. When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For Yahweh your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. See it there. Horses and chariots. Check. An army larger than your own. Check. 
So do not be afraid, because Yahweh is with you. Now, the rest of the battle takes place in verses 7 to 15. And it's disappointingly unremarkable. I mean, given how miraculously God intervened previously, this time nothing. But still, we know that God helps his people. It's a, just a straightforward battle narrative. In verse 8, we read again, And the Lord, Yahweh, gave them into the hand of Israel. They go, they smash, they burn Hazor to the ground, and it is a victory all around. So by the time of verse 15, we read, Just as Yahweh had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that Yahweh had commanded Moses. Victory. Victory against a colossal army. The final verses in verse 16 to 23 summarize then the entire conquest that's happened under Joshua's leadership. There's still some land to go. He'll, Joshua will point that out later in, in chapter 13. But this is pretty much it. Under the leadership of Joshua and with Yahweh fighting with them, they have taken most of the promised land. Three comments in this final section draw our attention in verses 16 and 23, chapter 11. First, in verse 19 to 20, No city inhabiting Canaan except for Gibeon made peace with Israel, for Yahweh had hardened their hearts. And we heard that read out before by Simeon in the Bible reading. And this language of the hardening of hearts, it calls to mind, it brings up memories and echoes the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in Exodus. Now, some might object to this. Why did God harden their hearts? Why couldn't he give them one more chance? Well, remember, they had plenty of chances. As Israel were marching through their lands, as they heard of Yahweh's miracles in helping Israel escape from Egypt, cross the Red Sea, cross the River Jordan, take Jericho by yelling at it, hit the city of Ai, in the preceding four hundred years, they had their chance. See, God's mercy is infinite. There is nothing too big that he cannot forgive. But God's patience is not. And at some point, his patience will run out. And so when God hardens their hearts here, he has done them no wrong. Number two. In verses 21 to 22, we get a mention of the Anakim. The Anakim were giants, giant men. In verse 22, we're told that none of them were left after this uh, conquest, except for a few left in Gaza in Philistine territory. And as you read on in your Bibles, David will meet one of these Anakim named Goliath later on. But the defeat of the Anakim here is another reminder that God is with Israel and God keeps his promises. He promised to be with Israel as they took the land. Because remember, it was giants in the land that caused Israel to be fearful and rebel in the wilderness and caused their judgment of wandering the desert 40 years. So here, the Anakim, gone, wiped out under Joshua. Again, a, a fulfillment by God, a promise by God that he kept. And then finally, in verse 23, Joshua took the land as Yahweh had commanded. He gave it to Israel as their inheritance. And right at the end, we read that the land had rest from war. In this final, super brief and concise verse, we get almost the entire book's purpose and the entire book's theology. 
to show us how Joshua and Israel took the land and how the goal of all of this was to obtain rest. See, rest is what God promised when they came into the land. It's what Joshua reminded the tribes as they were, what, that, what, of what they were going to achieve back in chapter 1. Joshua has now brought it about. Not only does the land have rest, but also the narrative seems to be at rest. From here on, the battles are done. The war is finished. A more laid-back and subdued tone takes over the rest of the book. And through all of these chapters, these chapters we've been pointed to this one big truth and the one who made it all possible. Joshua led the people, but it was Yahweh's name that comes up again and again, acting as the warrior on behalf of his people, entering into battle at crucial stages, giving Israel's enemies into their hands. And Yahweh does all of this not only to help them finish the conquest, but also to keep his promises. Again and again, this book is reminding us that God is a promise-keeping God, and he will do all within his power to make sure his promises come true. God always keeps his promises, and that makes him trustworthy. As we see all of this story unfold, and as we see also in his son Jesus, all of God's good promises are fulfilled in and through his son. His son, the servant on the cross who dies in our place and is raised to life. See, God promised to Abraham in Genesis 15 that one day his descendants would come back and take the land. And until then, the Canaanites had 400 years to repent. Their failure to do so meant that God's patience with them ran out. 400 years after Abraham, the nation of Israel marched through, acting as God's arm of justice and judgment on them. And as Israel marched through the land, Yahweh went before them, the warrior fighting for Israel. Here's this picture of God that we are being given. This picture of God as a warrior, maybe not something that we're often thinking about as when we think about God. Probably not something, a picture that we apply to Jesus very often. But it is a picture that the New Testament does apply to Jesus as he comes to judge the world. In Acts 17, Paul reminds the men of Athens that God has set a day in which he will judge the world. And he's given proof of this by raising that judge from the dead. And that judge in Revelation 19 is an intimidating one. It's an intimidating sight. So you got your Bibles there. Turn with me to the final, some of the final chapters in your Bible. It's right at the back. Revelation 19, verses 11 to 21. Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has, na- he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. 
He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of the kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds gorged with their flesh. Now to clarify briefly, the birds eating flesh here is a picture of shame and total victory by, of God over sinners. But the focus here is on the, white, is on the rider on the white horse. His name is the word of God, King of kings, Lord of lords. It is none other than Jesus. And it's a picture of Jesus I don't think we have of him, of him very often. A robe dipped in blood. His name and title tattooed on his thigh. A sword sing, swinging around, slaying sinners. This is a brutal and shocking picture of final judgment. And God promises that Jesus will return one day soon to close up history and judge this world. And he has made that promise sure by raising his son from the dead. God is patient with us now. But one day that patience will run out. So how will you respond to him? Just like the kings of Canaan, we've heard of what God has done. Maybe we've been struck with a bit of fear this morning. If not, we should rightly be. But now, how will you respond? How will you respond to the news that Jesus is going to return soon to judge this world? Friends, let me give some brief applications at the end here. There's some very brief applications of what we should do. So if you're not, not a Christian today, if you're tuning into our live stream and you're not sure you're a Christian, you're not sure you would call Jesus your true Lord and Saviour, well, you could choose to respond like the Canaanite kings. You could try and fight back against God or flee from him. But that's a certain loss. In this passage today, we've seen Yahweh as the warrior defeat all his enemies, triumph convincingly over them. There is no hope of trying to win against God. But there is an alternative. You could respond sort of like Gibeon, who feared Yahweh and did whatever they could to escape that judgment. Now, in God's sovereign plans, he has provided the way of escape. You don't have to try and use deceptive means. There's no tricks we can try and use to trick God into being kind to us. But in God's kindness, he has provided a way through his son, Jesus, Simply by trusting in his death and resurrection for you, 
You can escape that promised coming judgment. So friends, would you do that today? Don't leave it till later. Don't leave it till next month. Don't leave it till when we can regather as church to come and speak to Christians about it. Would you do it today? Would you speak to your friends, one of your Christian friends? Would you contact myself, one of the pastors or leaders of this church, to ask them what it means and what it looks like to put your trust and your faith in Jesus? Do it today because you don't know when God's patience will run out. And for those of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus, as we survey Joshua 9 to 11, I think our simple response to this passage is to give thanks. To give thanks that God is a promise-keeping God and he shows and demonstrates his promise-keeping and his faithfulness by sending his son Jesus. To give thanks that Jesus, our warrior king, has gone ahead of us. He has triumphed over our greatest enemy, sin and death. He has convincingly smashed it. He has won the victory on our behalf. We merely follow in his wake. And he gives us the land of eternal rest that is to come. Wow. Let's give thanks to Jesus for that. And let us marvel. Let us marvel at the destruction from which we have been spared. Remember that at one time, you too were on course destined for destruction. That we were outside of God's people. We had no rights to enter in. And we had no hopes. But by grace, through faith, we have been saved. And Jesus has the one, is the one who has rescued us. So let us rejoice. Let us be glad. And let us be thankful and in awe of our warrior king. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you are the one who have gone ahead, who has gone ahead, who has won the great victory in ways that parallel what Joshua did, but in ways that are greater even still. You've defeated the great undefeatable enemy of sin and death. You've won the victory on our behalf and you've opened up the eternal land of rest for us in the new heavens and the new earth. Lord Jesus, we know that you will return one day. The patience of your Father and his plans and purposes at some point will finish and you will call everybody to account. So we pray that you'd help us to live rightly in the light of that, to be thankful. And as we continue to journey on in the book of Joshua, help us to learn what it means to live in this time of rest now, in this time where Jesus is the victor, the king. Help us to be faithful to that, and we pray for some of us to respond today. The news that God's judgment is coming, and that your Jesus, you are the warrior king to come and execute that judgment, should instill within us proper fear. So help us to respond to that well and rightly. Father in heaven, thank you that you've made a way of escape through your son. So we pray that you'd help us to take it and to keep trusting it. And we pray all of these things for the glory of Jesus and our joy in him. In Jesus' name, amen.